intake, I am joined by two of my favorite people. My co-host is Jorge Ortega, Animal Services Director for Guilford County in North Carolina. And joining us will be Jose Ocaño, who is the Senior Director for People and Culture for Best Friends Animal Society. And the three of us are gonna talk about hustle culture. I am proud to represent the great state of North Carolina. For those of you who are listening, you can't see this, but I am wearing my favorite hoodie, which is, as you can see here, if you're watching, the North Carolina Animal and Rabies Association from when I worked in North Carolina, Jorge. I'm excited well, our conference is going to be there yeah, next year. Yeah, yeah that's going to be good, too. But I just went to the Ancarca or Macarca conference, depending on how you pronounce it. Like two weeks ago, so they just hosted their conference in Carolina Beach. It was a great, it was a great conference. It is a great. Yeah, I participated in the Animal Control Olympics. So. <gasps> they still do that. They still do yeah. the Animal Control. Olympics. That was what, the best. What do those part. In, What do those entail? Like I've never. Okay, no, so, you okay. can't tell him. So here, you can't tell him. Jorge, can, he has to go. Tell, he has to be no. prepped for next year. What if? Yeah, oh, are you trying yeah. to recruit him now to be on your team? You never know, That's man. What I'm Jose hearing. And I, I mean, talk about. I am active. I'm active. I'm active. Come on, there you go. So okay, I guess I'll just I'll fly in to like cheer you on. How's that? Why not? Why not? So the contests are or the challenges. um, You have to pick up beer bottles um, out of the six pack cardboard holder with a catch pole. Put them on the ground. Use cat nabbers to pick up the bottles on the ground and put them back in that six pack holder. That's one challenge, and your time. You have a partner, so it's a team of two doing these little The next one, there's probably about 30, 40 balloons, not helium balloons, just, just aired up balloons thrown on the floor. You have to use a catch pole to pick them up and put them in a garbage bag. So one of, one of, one of the team members is catch pole, the other one's holding the bag. Um, there's a wheelchair race. So what, one of you sits in the wheelchair and there's a course planned out through the tables. And this is all happening in the same place we meet. And then the person who's pushing the wheelchair is blindfolded. Has to be guided by the person sitting. What could go wrong? Yeah, nothing. Um, this year, since it was it fell close to Halloween, there was a uh, pumpkin race. Luckily, the pumpkins were plastic, so you had to put it between your knees and then kind of hop across the room and then exchange exchange pumpkins without using your hands with your partner and then run back across the room. I'm missing one more. Or there was a uh, cornhole toss. Um, but you were blindfolded. Um, so just so you know, I'm going to share this. My first toss was perfect. In? Right in. Like, Amazing. Yeah, so. MVP. Yeah, I know. We didn't, we didn't get a medal, though. You get a gold, a silver, and a bronze. We, I think we placed fourth. Ah, so close. Well, next year. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, well. I'm starting to run every morning now. And yeah. He's he's like Rocky, the theme song to Rocky. They're like, what are you trading for? The, the yeah, drink, drink more coffee, you know. Like, yeah. I should have a video like waking up for the Animal Control Olympics. You really, okay. you really should. Okay, I have to say it was amazing. And it was, it was, gosh, it was like 10 years ago when I was there. And I thought this is the most fun ever. And I'm surprised that I don't know of any other conference that does it, but it's brilliant. It's funny. And it's really engaging, and you cannot you cannot not laugh. Yeah, you, so you have is, to this laugh. Is, 
this is dating me way back in the days, and this is how long I've been in this industry. You remember Bill Brothers with mm -hmm. ACE? Well, Bill is the one who started those Animal Control Olympics way back in the day with NACA, uh, with the National Animal Control Association, and Texas Animal Control Association would also host these little Olympics. And so I think some of the associations still kept some of those things going. And I, and I love they, I love they do that. And it's a great way to network. It's a great way to just get to know people and at a different level where we're not all tense in a, in a classroom setting. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So it's, I think it's great. I love it. I love stuff like that. I think anything yeah. that helps us build relationships. And I think one of the best ways to build, like, like I was watching this interview last night with Oprah and Will Smith and he's like, you know, and he was talking about racism. He's like, you know, when you can't be racist, when you can't be racist, when you're laughing, you can't be filled <laughs> with hate when you're laughing. And I think about mm -hmm. our movement and how like, we all have different philosophies and approach and kind of like takes and experiences here. And that's why we're very like this and them. But it's like, it's those kinds of things that like, whenever you can do something like that with other people who think, pray, all those things differently than you, it's what helps you just humanize each other. It's hard to really hate someone you, you know, <laughs> you know, or know something more about. That's yeah. definitely true. I totally yeah, agree I, with that. I, I agree. I mean, your competitive spirit comes out, but in one of those fun, productive yeah. ways. Yeah. Um, and it, it, we just need more of that. Um, we just yeah. need that today. So. Yeah, I, we do. I love it. Well, Jose, we're really excited to talk to you because it's been Gosh, it's been a year since we talked with you. And so Jorge and I wanted to check in with you and kind of hear what you think. What's happened this last year? What have you observed? And how are you feeling right now about everything? Easy questions, Catherine. Yeah. Really, uh, really live softball questions. <laughs> you, you can break it up in, in bite-sized yeah. pieces if you want, Jose. That's yeah, yeah. all at the same time. So No, no yeah. I mean, it really has been like, such like I feel like we blinked and it's we're here already so in many ways it feels like time has flown by so fast that not as much has been accomplished as I think many of us are wanted hoped for planned for and I think in large part because this work is very deep and it requires a lot of just individualized self-reflection self-accountability processing what's my role in all that is institutional racism, racial inequities, social inequities of marginalized people. And so I think we're all doing that and organizations are a culmination of individuals, right? So you have everyone doing this at different comfort levels with different language, with different levels of receptiveness, with different levels of accountability. And so the challenges for the organization is to like, how do you take all of that and then move what the organization thinks is the most appropriate and best way for them to serve the cause and the movement, the philosophy of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which leads to a sense of belonging for all of us, which is something I feel like we all deserve by just being alive on this planet. <laughs> and so from a best friend's perspective, I think like we had some really ambitious goals and in retrospect, I look at it and I'm like, oh, that was like boiling the ocean. It was like, how do we do all the things? And I realized in trying to do all of the things, it was almost positioning us as potentially being like teachers 
And I think one big thing we did was like, wait, we are not in any position to teach anyone. We are so still in our infancy in understanding and learning this. And how do we take as all of the energy we have around this and turn it inside so that when we talk about how we're thinking and implementing more diversity, equity, and inclusion so we can have more belonging so that it's authentic and it's not performative. And so I think this time of year, we're looking at what have we learned in the past and how do we make sure that whatever we're gonna do moving forward is, is a lot more, what's the word, like reasonable to accomplish, <laughs> you know? And so we're in the early stages now of doing that. Cause if you remember, we had culture councils, we had six culture councils. Each one of them had anywhere between 10 and 12 people. And each council focused on a different topic. It could be recruitment. It could be advancing the movement, um, data. It could be things like um, internal education and accountability. And you have people who would work around that subject matter and then produce different kind of outcomes that were identified. And we, we now know that that list was way larger than what we could actually do because we're also trying to do this on top of our work. So it's mm -hmm. like, how do we maintain the system that has to be maintained in order to do your daily business while evaluating where it doesn't serve you and trying to change it simultaneously, <laughs> you know? And that I think is the hard thing when you're already an established organization and you're trying to build something better while maintaining what you have, which much of it is good, but how do you renovate during this time? Like, I feel like what we're all doing right now, I think of it as like cultural renovations because it's about keeping what works while redoing what doesn't, regardless if it was your kitchen to remodel, it doesn't matter, you're the owner of that kitchen. <laughs> It's right. your job to fix it. And I think I, I approach that same kind of, I approach it, my work and my job as it relates to DEI in the same way. Like I did not inherit this. I'm not, or I'm not responsible for a lot of these things, but in my position of influence and power, it's my responsibility to do something about it. It's harder than people realize. And people, I, I love what you said about it's not our job to teach. Like this is not our expertise. This is not what we do. We need guides. We need coaches. We need experts to help us take this journey because it's really difficult and it's long overdue and it's gonna take a long time to go on this journey. So, so Jorge, talk a little bit about what you and I talked about the other day, about yeah, what you're- no, I, I think one thing I want to say when we were talking about DEI, we can't forget that it's uncomfortable for some people to talk about, right? It's either, it's easier to turn, I'm too busy, because right now we're busy, and this is one of the things we had talked about, is like, oh my, we've, we've gotten really busy. Um, I remember in one of your town halls, Jose, we were talking about slowing down and just looking at things and just taking a, a bigger perspective view on, on everything, but now we're so busy, like everything's happening so fast, and and, and, and are we using the busy, we're too busy excuse to, yeah, in, in theory, DEI is good, but are we actually doing something, right? Like, so are we really, 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 really focused on, we are doing the work. So when it comes to us in, in municipal government, there's so many different layers 
um, before you know anything one direction or the other direction actually gets to us so we can feel like we're making an impact. So yeah, at, at times it just takes us directors at the department level to start implementing some things and making some changes, but to really make that big change, that big impact, there's so many other levels that just create some challenges. And, so, and, and sometimes are we using that as a crutch to say we're not making that progress or, or, or not. But I, it's for me, I think it, for some of us and in animal welfare, I think it's an uncomfortable conversation. And I think we need to figure out how we keep DEI in the forefront and talking about that and not letting it fall. And because we're busy, right? We're busy with intakes and we're busy with surrenders and we're busy with trying to keep pets and families together. But all of, all of what we're talking about, the diversity, you know, equality and inclusion, that's part of that. Like that that's who we're helping, right? But we don't look at it as an individual piece of it. Um, so so it's, just, it's just interesting that a year ago when we started talking about DEI, things were different in animal welfare. Things were slow. Um, our intakes were almost none. We were, a lot, a lot of people were closed. Right, yeah. and, and, and we, we were still taking care of the 20, 30 something animals that we had at the shelter mm-hmm. had to be here. We had teams split up. We really could break down and do a lot of training and talk about these and have long conversations without saying, oh my God, we got to open in 20 minutes. Okay, anything else? Okay, we're done, go. And, and so now we're back to that thing. And, and, and I remember saying this early on in 2020 when the pandemic is, is that we finally got to a point where we were running the shelter and the shelter wasn't running us, where we weren't always playing catch up with the changes and what was happening and what was happening, what was happening. Um, now you add the numbers going up, but you also have the lack of staffing and the challenge of just, you know, one, hiring staff and two, keeping staff, because now some of the staff that started working during the pandemic only saw 20, 20 dogs. Now they're seeing 200 and like, oh my God, what the hell is going on? Um, so so for, for, for us, and I'm talking to us, me, my department, it's just been, it's been a challenge. It's been a challenge to keep the conversation going and, and I know we're not alone. And, and how, how do we, at least I'm, I'm in touch with the conversation, but there's a lot of us within animal welfare that just don't, don't have not reached out or doesn't know where to go and get some resources. And how do we, how do, we do that? How do we get more resources? And just, I guess the big thing is just keeping the conversation alive. I mean. Yeah, I think you're okay. totally right. Whenever I would talk to the staff, about this, the number one reason or the number one barrier to this work was people not knowing how to talk about this and feeling uncomfortable. And this is, and I found this to be especially true with, um, I mean, you know, best friends, like many organizations, animal welfare is largely white and female. And there's, let me, there's nothing wrong with that. There, in terms of, it is pretty, I still think it's neat that we have an industry that is led by a lot of women when that is not the case throughout the sector. Mm-hmm. So, and I think I hear it often talked about in a way that is not like a positive thing. And I'm like, hey, women are still marginalized in a large part of this country. So I think we need to be balanced, but nonetheless, it's a lot of 
white women that I talk to who are really like, I just don't want to say the right thing because I don't, I'm afraid to come off as racist. I'm afraid to come off as transphobic or homophobic and all of these things. And so we also are in a culture of where words matter so much that some folks just don't know what the right words are. And so they choose to say nothing. And if there's one thing that James Evans has really taught me is the importance of just talking and having the conversation and giving each other some grace, knowing that like, we're not always gonna say the right thing or use the right word or phrase or context of something. And our job is to like help each other through that. And so I think like that's really important. And I think like, where do we start? For me, it starts about people jump in this conversation to like, well, how do we become more diverse? They hyper-focus on the diversity aspect of things. And then they super focus in on um, sex and religion and gender, you know, of, of, the, of the dimensions of diversity. And I admit, I think I was similar. It's like, okay, how do we become more diverse so that we're more representative of the communities? And that is like the long game. When you're an organization like Best Friends with who is as established and has as many staff as we do, like it is going to take time for that to happen. And what we can and should do more immediately is really focus on inclusion. How do we create an environment and an ecosystem of inclusion? So as we're working to kind of check our biases and our processes and our approaches to hiring people that we're, we're kind of removing anything that is obvious of why we're getting one demographic and outcome of person. So we should be doing like inclusion at the same time as you're looking at equity for pay and things like that. But if you do a great job and you attract diverse talent, but you don't have an inclusive environment, you can't retain them. And everyone benefits from an inclusive environment, everybody. And so I think a big focus of mine is like, how do we, how do we focus on inclusion? And inclusion really is like, how do you, how are, do you set up systems and how do you create a culture of curiosity? So it's like from a animal control, like when I used to work at the, at the, at the intake lobby, when I, I remember shifting my brain to judgment, to curiosity and how that changed everything for me, everyone on the receiving end of my interaction with me and my colleagues, it's those kinds of shifts of like judgment to curiosity. You know, if you are in a position of power and influence, knowing that like it is your job to share that. It is your job then to create, like, if I'm on a call and I notice someone's quiet, actually being intentional of saying, like, what do you think? If I'm the most senior person on the call, and I'm not good at this yet, but I'm trying to be better at, like, reserving my opinion for the end to say, here's what I think, and really making sure people have the psychological safety to be able to say what they think. Like, these are all the things that I can, being sure of like, who's not in the meeting? How do I add them to this meeting and make sure they know they have a voice at this table? Those are things that I can do like now. And these are just, and honestly, this is part of like being a decent human being <laughs> at work. Like a lot of what is inclusion, it's like, I'm not telling people like, oh, go read this book and all this. It's like, be a human, be like, be respectful, be kind, be open, be curious if we focus on those kinds of things in the workplace for everybody, it's going to create more of a sense of inclusion and belonging. And I do believe that at our most intrinsic level, we are those things, then the earth and the world happens to us. <laughs> and it's like, we all have this story arc of going from like, how do we go from fear to love, right? Like, and that can sound very woo-woo-y, but like that 
matters in the workplace? Like, how do you make decisions that aren't based off of fear and judgment and more out of openness and curiosity? Those are going to create the work environments that are going to allow for the infrastructure and foundation of inclusion and belonging so that when you are able to attract more diverse talent and you're, you're able to actually retain them and they're able to learn and grow and develop themselves also throughout the organization. Jose, if you had a mic, that's when you just go and <laughs> mic drop right there. Because I, I, I think you nailed it. I think it's in really in the vocabulary, how we use certain words, um, you know, and, and we try to do the same thing here with, with staff and the team and encourage them to, to do the same thing. It's just ask more questions. Don't just, you know, let's try to find the root cause of why they're here and how we can help them, whatever it may be. But I, I mean, I think you you nailed the head the nail on the head right there by what you just said. I mean, I think that's it's it's how we look at things and just being open minded to look at things differently and be curious. I I think that's that's key is being curious. Um, I just don't think our our industry gives us or we don't allow us ourselves time to do that. I think yeah. we, I think we are trained to functions in certain ways. And I know we have been trying to just change how and what animal welfare is moving forward, but we get slowly sucked back in into this, just the way of doing things because the world doesn't stop. It just, it just takes us with us. And, and, I, and I think it's important, I'm gonna, since, since our brother and friend James can't be here, he has definitely taught me a lot of things. And one of the things he also taught me it's something I knew, but he brought, he put the words to it that I'm like, ah, oh, he's like, whenever he's like, you can go to all these trainings on any topic. And the second you are back in like urgency mode and problem solving, and like you're running the fire drill, your bias takes over because you yeah. need, your brain has to work in the, in the, with the cylinders that are going to go the fastest on the most subconscious level to just get shit done, you know? And that's when we lose everything that we've trained. And I think our, the urgency of animal welfare and saving lives, I completely understand it. I worked in a municipal setting. I was a euthanasia technician. I worked my way up and worked in that environment for over 12 years. So I get the urgency. It does not serve us. There are so many systems in animal welfare that like you hire people, you just throw them in and it's like very much sink or swim every day is just like you're drinking water from the fire hose and it's just there's no time to be strategic there's no time to rest and to self-care it's there's all these things and it's why you see the turnover that we see it's because we have an ecosystem that actually isn't conducive and until those of us who are actually in positions to say that we want to have a different organization that responds differently that works different we actually need new ways to work that's really what we're doing Right. And that's why culture matters so much. Culture is your how. We all, we're all here to help people and help animals. That's our what. We all have similar what's um, in terms of the essence and genesis of why we're doing this. But our how, which is the culture, varies. And I want to work at an organization that really is intentional about a how that serves us and not a how that we are at the mercy of. And I feel like we are all at the mercy of, of just the, of kind of this very reactive culture and it and it's 
if you're, if we're in reactive mode, we're not going to get good about being curious. We're not going to mm. get good about not being judgmental. We're not going to be good about any of these things. And it's why, like, when I talk to, you know, whether it's a shelter director, shelter staff, or, or like political leaders about things like managed intake. And I know there's like 18 names for it now. <laughs> I think it's still managed intake in general. People understand that. It's like, this isn't about not taking animals in. This is about trying to stabilize your operation so you can breathe, <laughs> so you can plan, so that your staff can take lunch. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. these things that are like basic that like we all pride ourselves at being like, I don't like, I don't like who works the hardest and the longest hours. And like, I remember talking about to other people in a way of like, I worked 80 hours this week, I didn't eat. And it was like, oh, you're, you're a hard worker. We should keep promoting you and keep giving you more. And I'm like, I look at that now and I'm like, I would have zero interest in doing that to anybody and to ever do that to myself again. Cause I'm not my best self working in that. I'm not my most kind, compassionate, open, receptive, respectful self when I'm overworked, stressed and running from one crisis to the next. Like I'm not, I'm not as, I'm not of use in that way. And I don't I think, think a lot of us are. I think that's such a great observation about animal welfare in particular. And the 26 years I've been in this field, it I have seen a shift in trying to find the more strategic and thoughtful balance. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. We would celebrate and um hold people up and say, look, they're working 80 hours a week. They're, you know, you can always count on them. And they're, they're always the first to raise their hand and run in to help, you know, put out the fire, literally. And unfortunately, to your point, that's why there's so much turnover. That's why there's so much um, stress and exhaustion and fatigue. And it's, it's painful because we've lost some really good people to suicide in animal welfare over the years who have not had the ability to seek the help they need or have an environment or a culture that fostered self-care. And so I think you're absolutely right, changing the culture and creating a culture that is supportive and promotes uh, self-care and really meaning it because there, there are a lot of organizations out there that talk about it. They talk about self-care and they talk about how great their culture is, but, but culture is really what it is. It's not what you say it is. Yep. And so when you go on vacation, are you really able to unplug or are your staff members calling you? Is your boss calling you when you're supposed to be unplugged? And I, for many years, was not in a position where I could do that. And fortunately, now I am. And it's life changing. And it enables you to gain perspective and take a breath and recuperate. And I think it's, it's so sad when we see people who burn so brightly in our field, and then they burn out, and then we lose them. Yeah, Whether Hustle culture, right? I always tell people, I'm like, hustle culture to me is very toxic. Like, and I, and I see it. My Facebook is filled with hustle culture memes and just things that people are declaring the sacrifice of themselves that they're giving toward these altruistic calls that calling that we all have. And that's the thing that's tough about mission work is 
where many of us, if not, I would venture to say all of us are here in this movement because of this deep connection of doing something bigger than all of us. It's why we'll take salaries that are lesser than what we could probably make in the private sector. It's why we sacrifice times with family and friends. We miss the wedding. We miss the birthday. We miss the birthday dinner because we're working late. You know, we, we miss all these things. And um, it's all part of hustle culture. And that's honestly, it's really rooted in capitalism. <laughs> and you start to unpack some of these things. And it's like, none of this serves us and our calling. Like I know for me, I, I want to have longevity in this field. I want to be here talking to you too in 20, 30 years. And the only way I'm going to be able to do that is if I actually genuinely and authentically take care of myself and not just say like self-care, here's a picture of the ocean, but it's all bullshit. You know, like actually saying like, nope, I'm unplugged and creating those systems. Like now me being off of work and what it looks like now and versus 10 years ago was very different. I needed to feel plugged in. It fed my ego when mm. people were calling me on my days off on my vacations. Cause I'm so important that I'm that needed. And then you create this narrative. Like I can't go because I'm so needed. Meanwhile, you like created it, especially if you're in a leadership role. A lot of times we co-create all of this, you know, and we also, we only accept, we, people only treat us the way we accept, whether that's an organization or anything else. And I think having setting boundaries and holding your boundaries are really important. And it's so cool to see in this workforce, all of that is becoming like, it's not crazy to hear about like boundaries and being vulnerable and authenticity and transparency when you're talking in the context of leadership in these animal welfare roundtables and things like that. It's really cool. And it's what gives me a lot of hope for the future is the fact that there's new leadership. And then there's people who've been around the block who subscribe to this anyways. And it's going to be the collective of the two that are going to change the whole ecosystem of animal welfare. One of the things that cracks me up is I absolutely 100% agree with you that we create these narratives where we are indispensable and that's why and you're right it absolutely you know feeds ego and you know I'm validated because I'm important I'm so important that when I go on vacation people have to call me and I've always laughed at that because the more you read about leadership the more you learn about management a true sign of a good leader and a wonderful manager is when that person can go away and the systems and the culture and the environment is healthy and strong without them that is the benchmark of success so it's kind of ironic that especially in this hustle culture that we you know we thrive on, oh, well, we're on vacation, but we can't take a vacation. And I've, I've been that person. I've Me been that too. person. And I can very well admit to it and say, you know what? It was, it was exhausting, but at the same time, I thought, well, I, I'm important and I'm validated by this. But that long-term wasn't healthy for me and wasn't healthy for the organization or the team. And being able to coach and train and mentor someone to take charge when you're away, that's the gift of leadership. That's the gift of empowerment. And that's when you know that you've really accomplished something, when you can go away and nobody calls you. And that's what we should all be striving toward. And I think that's why this DEI work is really hard as well, yeah. because 
we know, number one, that it has to come from leadership. It has to come from the CEO. If, if this belief is not held by the leaders of an organization, everybody will know it. Like it, it has to come from the top and it has to be authentic. And so it's not something that you can plug into this hustle culture and make it happen. You know, let's check these boxes. Let's do this. Let's have a webinar. How many trainings for DEI are you going to this year? All of a sudden, it just becomes a part of that hustle culture. And then everybody wonders, why aren't we making any progress? So I think I really love that you brought that up. And Jose, can you talk to us a little bit about, um, we have an upcoming conference and you are uh, very generously leading and facilitating a conversation around the future of employment, retention and attraction and culture. And we're gonna have a really deep discussion and I'm so excited that you get to facilitate that conversation. What are you hoping comes out of that roundtable conversation? I'm so excited. So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I could talk about this all day and I do like culture because at the most deepest level, I love people. I, and I really love people who are doing the work that everyone in animal welfare and human services are doing. And so people spend the most of their time at work and sleeping. And so I have a real basic philosophy, simple philosophy, like have a mattress that is good, splurge on the mattress and have a job that you care about that feeds you and kind of, and if, if, if it's possible that tees up to you the highest version of yourself in your highest calling, like Julie Castle, our CEO calls it her grand passion. So like finding the grand passion. And so because people spend the majority of their time at work, the experience they have drastically influences their life. And think about it. I'm sure we've all had a bad work situation. And just think about how that destroys your life, your confidence on like on everything, your relationships with if it, your personal relationships, your friendships, like it just takes such a toll being in a toxic work environment. It, it really ruins people's lives. But the opposite is true. If you have a great work environment, it's the kind of thing that makes you a better person. You're the best version of yourself. Everything else in your life thrives. And so I want to be part, like I've, I've come to understand like my purpose in life is to help create these spaces that are, that bring out the best in people. And that's what culture is. And that's why I'm so excited of what we're going to talk about, because we're going to have, you're going to have an incredible keynote to really talk about what we're seeing in terms of the great resignation. Some people have heard these phrases, like there are people, companies across sectors are having a really hard time attracting and retaining talent. So I think we're going to get a really great presentation on that. And then what I'm going to do after that is I'm going to meet with some shelter leaders and we're going to take it a step further and talk about culture and values because it's a lot of times organizations have values and they're just these things that someone decided sounded good and they live on a website, but it's not the actual experience of the, it's the staff. And that's because it's not authentic and it's not genuine. And it's because usually the leadership's not um, living it, those things. And so it, it all starts at the top. And so I'm excited to kind of share with people what I think is so important, at, which is an important job as a leader, which is like setting the tone for culture. And that's the hard thing about being a leader. We, we have, we ask a lot of leaders. And that is why these positions have the titles they do. 
and the pay that they do. And, and in terms of, I know it could be more and people would be like, I don't get paid enough for that. But think about your pay, your pay as a leader and your animal care worker. There is for sure a significant meaningful gap 99% of the time. And part of that is because it's our job to balance what's the strategy of this organization? What's the financial sustainability of this? What are the political and social relationships we need to maintain in order to be relevant and move this mission forward? And how do we make this an incredible place to work? And how do I live those values every single day? And I think as we help leaders unpack, like, does your organization have values? What are they? How do you find them? How do you actually make these real and tangible experience for people? And when people start to understand that, like, by doing that, you will meet and exceed all of your goals, whether they're life-saving or financial. And so I tell people, whether you want to, like, invest in your culture because it's helpful to the, your bottom line, or you're like me and you're, it's more of an altruistic outcome you're looking for, which is, like, people just being their best selves at work. I want to work with people who are having a great time, you know? Either one of those is okay, <laughs> as long as the outcome is putting in the work to actually create that ecosystem where people can just show up, be their best, most authentic self, develop into even a greater version of themselves. So like hiring for potential as opposed to just hiring for experience, like getting down into also the tactical things from here's the philosophy, but what are some actual tactical things you can do to lift this from like concept to actual real lived experience. And that's what I'm excited about doing. I guess one of the challenges, I haven't worked both in nonprofit and government now, do you see one has more of an advantage to make things like changing cultures and the DEI conversation than the other? Yeah, um, it's, it's definitely, so I've worked in both and they both have advantages and things that are disadvantages. You know, in, when I worked in Pima, in Pima, in Tucson, Arizona, for, I was there for a collective 10 years, there were some definite municipal barriers that just were challenging. But I also found that my job as a shelter director or just a shelter leader was figuring out how to work within the red tape, work around it, and then know, like, know when you need to just like, uh, like challenge the whole system. Because you can't challenge every system that's jacked up in your municipal government. You have to pick and choose and the rest you work around and you get very creative pilots, pilot, 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 right? <laughs> um, but I found that even in Pima, like we had a really great culture there because my job was to create, as the director was to create the tone. And even if there was things that like in my mind, I was like, how do I run this government shelter? And how does it feel like a nonprofit? How does it have all the feels that you would get going into a humane society or something like that. Because humane societies are really good at that because they have to be in order to fundraise. And right. so their, their lifeblood, you have to create that. It can be inauthentic though. It can be like, oh, we're this, but the actual experience of the staff is different. So I think it all comes down to who you are as a leader and being very intentional about creating a certain environment. And if you're motivated to do it, you will do it in a municipal setting, you will do it in a private sector, you will do it with $100 million, and you will do it with $2 million or $100,000, because you're, it's that important to you. And it doesn't matter what, whether you're a team of five or a team of 850, you, it's still the same things you're trying to do, which is like, how do you operate with, via your values? And so like at Best Friends, we got really clear about what do those values look like in action? So we have guiding principles. 
And so those are things like positive influence, kindness, transparency, leadership. What the heck does that mean? And yes, you can have one sentence definition, but that's not even clear. So we asked the staff through 40 different workshops, what does this mean in action? Like, how does this show up for you? And then we created our guiding principles in action. And so it actually lists the be actual behaviors that we want to hire for, train, promote, the kind of attitudes and ways we want people to show up. And now we have kind of a guide on how to do that. But I honestly think that every leader has to be motivated to do it. And if you're not motivated to do it, you shouldn't be a leader. I honestly, I've become that like black and white about it at this point. I used to be very like, oh no, like I listened to this Brene Brown podcast and actually she said it. And once Brene was like, if you don't have a vested interest in like the experience of your team and the development of them, you should not be a leader. If you think all of this sounds too woo-woo-y, you are going to really struggle managing the majority of the workforce, which are millennials and Gen Z. And so it's just like, if you don't want to be a dinosaur and go extinct, you better get with the program. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I agree 100%. I mean, I'm, I've been in animal welfare for a very long time and it's, you have to adapt and change and you have to be flexible. And, you know, our team members today are not the same ones they were, you know, five years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and philosophies and ideas change. And the ideas piece is something that I have learned through the years to be more open-minded of and be more receptive and not the Jorge way. But what do you all think? Like, so we meet in the mornings you know, we do a little team huddle, a little stand-up meeting really quick and just to kind of cover everything. Everybody represents each team. And we talk about the daily challenges. I mean, we just got through moving into a new facility. So there's a lot of, lot of pressure, a lot of stress on everyone right now. But talking about things early in the morning and some of these crazy ideas, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't do that. But it turns out to be great. But I'm just like, okay, you guys go ahead, right? It's just being able to let go has been a learning experience for me just to be just again to be yeah I tell a lot of people like there's a lot of ways to get to four there's one plus three there's zero plus four there's two plus two like there are a lot of ways to arrive at the answer and I think a lot of times where leaders struggle with truly empowering their teams is like they didn't come to the exact two plus two equals four equation that I wanted they went yeah. zero plus four and and then we like intervene and interject you know and we yeah. got to just like let go and trust and the only way these leaders are going to actually get better is even through their mistakes and we have to let people like fail fast pick up recuperate let's pivot and move forward you know yeah amen i'm i'm there I, I'll, I'll learn through my mistakes i'll dust my <laughs> off and get back up and let's yeah is so where do you see dei the, the movement, the conversation of DEI, like the next year? Like, what do you see? I mean, I think we need to continue to have the conversation and, it, or we need to continue to make sure that DEI is part of the conversation that we're having about, and not just like, oh, we're having a DEI meeting. It's like, we're in a strategy call to talk about our, our next um, 2022's goals. And as you're thinking about like, because you, when you're doing that, you're factoring in things. You're looking at your budget. What's your FTE look like? You, you have certain kind of guardrails that you use to build out plans. And DEI should be one of those things where you're thinking about like, how are we going to be more inclusive? You know, we talk about outreach all the time. 
what does inReach mean? We see Kara talking more about inReach, like you should get more curious about inReach. And if we were to have that philosophy, how might that change our approach and what how this program looks? And so I think the key is to continue to prioritize DEI so that DEI informs how we do everything. And we have to just keep doing the work, the uncomfortable work on ourselves of just like looking in the mirror and really kind of asking ourselves hard questions and doing the work and encouraging that work to be done throughout the organization and finding different education opportunities or like at Best Friends, one of the things I love the most that we do is we do a courageous conversation series where we'll take like, for instance, um, I know you both know Jace Higgins. And so Jace um, did a three-part LGBTQIA plus training. And one of those was we, we put a call out to staff who felt comfortable and wanting to share their story and experience. And so Jace moderated a panel um, of folks where they could really, we could uplift their experiences in a way that doesn't put burden on them, but where here's what, what would you like your colleagues to know about your life experience so that people on the receiving end can consider a different perspective and hopefully that perspective and that new information might make them navigate their life better <laughs> and differently, you know, because at the end of the day, what we want is not everyone knowing all, we don't want perf performative virtue signaling. We want actual people doing better, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I think it, so we have to kind of not forget the human relational side of it. And because I think DEI can, we can get consultants and it, we can continue to just conceptualize the hell out of it. But at the core, we just need to be better people. And so like, what is the activity and conversations and kind of exposures we're gonna get to training and to experiences that are gonna allow us to have that. And so that's what I wanna see more of. I wanna keep seeing people's voices lifted. I love the affinity groups that are happening. Um, I think we are looking at doing affinity groups inside Best Friends as well. Like, creating some of those safe spaces for different marginalized groups of people to come together to share and laugh and get some education and, and really just make sure that that experience is being, um, is being uplifted and that it's being, it's a sacred conversation, it's a sacred space that we're creating those spaces in the workplace that will help people be their best, most authentic self at work. Yeah, I, I, I just don't want, the conversation to, as we get this year, I want the conversation to disappear or, or just, I mean, I love the conversation that we've had about culture. And I think that sets the tone for positive change within the organization. I mean, I think we focus so much about keeping the animals with the families and, you know, increasing adoption or life release rates. Um, I don't think we, you know, I included, don't, don't focus so much on our people, the, the expect to do all this great work. Um, if we're not whole, we're not good. We, we can't expect, you know, that, that, that outcome. I mean, I, I think it's, it's very challenging, but everything you've said, I, I've been taking notes as you're talking, I record it, so I go back. But I, I, I think it's one of those conversations that it needs to continue to happen. And, and, and I know if we, if we're looking at our culture, we're definitely looking at DEI and other challenges that animal welfare is facing. And I know we are trying to change animal welfare to just to just be a better industry. I mean, we, we have great and amazing people. Um, it's just, we're so busy. And, and how, how do we take time to, you know, not only attend the, the, the workshops or the, you know, like the town halls you host, Jose, is 
how do we how do we get more people engaged in that conversation? That's that's something that I would love to to definitely do, especially in this age where we're all zooming and you know teams and that that's one thing the pandemic brought us is being able to do this. Mm-hmm. Is how do we how do we invite others that have not been engaged in the conversation for the last year into the conversation and looking into a positive new future for animal welfare? Yeah, I think if. Whenever I talk about DEI, I always talk about culture because I think DEI, I tend to hear people talk about it like as an initiative with the beginning and an end. And it's not. It's it's a philosophy. It's an ethos. It's a commitment of a certain way of operating and thinking and and spending our money, et cetera. And to me, it starts with like inclusive cultures. And if we work really hard at creating inclusive cultures, it's going to create that infrastructure where we can continue to have the kinds of conversations and do the self-exploration and create an environment where we're able to bring our, bring our best self to work. And our best self is a curious, open-minded, compassionate, you know, self. And though that is at the end of the day is we want people to belong and it's going to set the tone for being able to be a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive work environment. And it will, we will have to work at it every single day forever. So this shouldn't go anywhere because in the same way, we will always have to save lives. We will always have to engage with communities and help pets. It might work, might look different as we evolve, but there's always going to be a need there, you know? And I think similar is DEI. Like it's about making sure it, it stays part of the lexicon of the conversations we're having as we continue to advance. Cause we're actually not going to be able to solve anything deeply without it because organizations who don't focus on inclusive cultures are going to continue to struggle with hiring and retention. And they're never going to, they, they run the risk of not meeting their mission and their goals because of the constant turnover right. and all of those kinds of things. So it's like really creating this infrastructure of an inclusive work culture. I'm telling you, it's the, it is like the silver bullet. I wish more people would talk about it. And I think they are thanks to like this conversation and even like positions like mine being created. I know Catherine was had one of the first, I think, people culture type jobs in animal welfare too. And it needs to become yeah. much more common in the same way that like you have a foster coordinator, like 10 years ago, not everyone had a foster coordinator. Oh. And now that's pretty standard. We need to start having people within the organizations who are roles like mine that are focused on culture. And if it, you don't have it as this director and CEO, it's you. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I, I agree 100%. You're amazing. I've learned a lot, Jose. I want to thank you for being with us today. One, one re- I mean, what you said about culture and about looking at leadership in a different view, like I have learned so much just listening to you this morning. Um, it, 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 it actually has helped me a lot because I'm going through a lot of stressors right now with everything that's going on in this organization and in our community. So there's a lot of things that you said that pertain to what's going on today with me and our organization. So I really appreciate everything you said today. So, Well, what I love the most about our conversation today was that uh, we are definitely attacking the hustle culture. This is never going away. And it's nope. the most important thing we can do to support each yeah. other and our colleagues in animal welfare. So thank you both so much. 
Jorge, as always, I love when you co-host with me. And Jose, you're the best guest. <laughs> and we can't wait till our next conversation. So thank can't you wait. both. Looking forward to thank it. Thank you. Thank you.